Hi, this is Russ Teitelman, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All. And welcome to another exciting edition of the Fab Four Free For All. We are a whenever the hell we want to podcast, uh, talking about the Beatles and Beatle related and all that good stuff. And tonight we have a... oh. Sorry, before I say anything else, I'm Mitch Axelrod, your moderator for tonight's episode. And joining me, as they always do, are Rob Leonard and Tony Gerardo. Now, you might realize that we have a fourth person here. Um, no, that's not just a homeless guy coming in to talk about the Beatles. Um, although Boom bomber. <laughs> right. Uh, but it is Bruce Spicer, the author of so many books on the Beatles Um Incredible books on the Beatles that are all behind me. See, um, incredible stuff. We, oh, yes, Rob, we are going to be talking about that book. Don't put it up yet because I didn't mention it yet. <laughs> but that's okay. Bruce, welcome to the Fab Four Free for All. Oh, good to be here. I always enjoy following with you guys. Oh, okay. The, the checks must have cleared. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, tonight we, we are talking. Um, actually, Bruce came out with a book a couple months ago, a few months ago to coincide with what he thought was probably going to be the <laughs> release of the Get Back film, the brand new film by Peter Jackson. Um, but unfortunately, as we all know, what happened to that, it got delayed. But Bruce's book didn't, thank goodness. Uh, and Rob, you want to hold it up again? Because I will. Pretend um, you didn't it the first time, everyone. Look yes, at it's that. Called, Look at that. It's called The Beatles. Finally Let It Be, compiled by Bruce Beiser, with additional contributions by Bill King, Al Sussman, Frank Daniels, Piers Hemmingson, and other Beatles fans. Um, this is, I think, the third book, Bruce, if I'm not fourth, mistaken. Fourth, fourth book in the, the album series. series. Yep. Okay, book. I know you did, uh, or you definitely did Abbey Road. Pepper and White. Pepper and White. Did the White Road, <laughs> the White Road. <laughs> you did the White Album and you did Pepper, right. right. Uh, now, these books are, are really kind of cool because... Um, I, Unlike your other books, which are absolutely amazing. Uh, my favorite being The Beatles Are Coming, but that's a different story. Um, this book, these books compile everything about this one album and event into one book instead of having it in another book with other things, which is kind of great because you get everything specific to it right here, uh, which I kind of like. So technically, you can do one of these for every every album or every uh, couple albums. Yep. Yeah. Well, good. Maybe, maybe in the future, and maybe at the end of this, we'll try to get you to do it next. All right. <laughs> anyway, um, I just want to get started. You know, with the, with the whole pandemic, we we lost the Get Back film for a, a while, yeah. uh, and we'll get into that later. But how did you? Because we're going to be talking about the book and the movie, um, mm -hmm. meaning the the original movie uh, in this discussion. How did you first learn about? what the next Beatles project was going to be, which at that time was Get Back. I started, um, the first thing of anything associating to do with it was really TV Guide. They had a two-page spread uh, saying that the Beatles were working on this uh, new album and they were going to have a TV special of them recording. And uh, it was a picture of them up on the rooftop. And then shortly after that, I heard the song Get Back on the radio. Uh, and then the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour actually showed clips of the Beatles doing Get Back on the rooftop. So literally that TV Guide two-page spread came alive on my TV, which is very cool. And also Don't Let Me Down. And I began um, reading Rolling Stone magazine. Magazine? What's a magazine? Yes. 
it was a thing that was made of paper and <laughs> it was really strange. And it would seem as if almost every other issue or so, you know, the Beatles get back album will be coming out, you know, next month. And then it would be, now it'll be coming out two months later. And it <laughs> kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And all of a sudden now, you know, you're into 1970 and the thing's still getting pushed back. And I'd remembered uh, issue a Rolling Stone where they said that uh, the album would be coming out uh, sometime in April or May. However, Apple did not say April of May of which year. <laughs> and that pretty much summed it up. And so for me, it was, you know, Let It Be comes out and it was like, you know, Let It Be finally, you know. And so that's kind of the whole concept behind it to me was, you know, the Beatles finally Let It Be because it took them, you know, over a year and a half really about to, to yeah. get this thing out. And then ironically, of course, the number one question that poor Jeff Jones has always asked at Apple was, when's Let It Be coming out? Mm. And so, you know, and then with the Peter Jackson film, even though it was called Back, Get Back, it was, okay, the Beatles finally let it be. So, of course, I had to call this book, The Beatles Finally Let It Be. I, I do remember on Christmas Eve of 1969, listening to a radio station that was Spanish during the day and went hippie at night, as my Spanish teacher would say. <laughs> and they had gotten a hold of a Get Back bootleg and they played the entire bootleg. And I had gotten for Christmas a combination radio cassette player. And I put in the cassette and I recorded the bootleg. And then after that, for reasons unknown, the disc jockey played Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction. <laughs> and that's how I got introduced to those songs. And I felt like I had forbidden fruit, uh, you sure. know, because I had Beatles songs that most people didn't have, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. We had a high school trip up to Washington, a bus trip from New Orleans to Washington. And I brought my cassette player, which also had battery power. And I played that for some of my Beatle friends. And, you know, we listened to uh, those songs. I, I really loved uh, The Long and Winding Road. It was just this beautiful, simple ballad. And uh, when I heard the 45 overproduced by Phil Spector, <laughs> uh, I, I was just sickened to my stomach um, because I just love that plain, simple ballad song. But, but we'll talk about Spector and the album later. Yeah, definitely. You mm. know, we'll, 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 you know, but, uh, you know, good at the good and the bad. But that's kind of how was I good. got introduced Sorry. to it. <laughs> you know, and when, and when I got the album, I mean, I absolutely loved two of us. I thought Spector did a great job on that. And selecting those rooftop performances was great, but I just never could forgive him for the long and winding road <laughs> and all the weird stuff he did to let it be. Where neither could, neither could a, Paul. Yeah. I mean, yeah. at the end of let it be, Paul was competing with a raunchy guitar solo and brass. And I just, I just didn't like it, you know, but that, that was my opinion. But what I did like, I really liked. And fortunately I had a cassette player. So I was able to isolate the songs that I really liked. And that way I didn't have to get up and lift the needle for the long and winding road. I could listen to the piano ballad type. <laughs> you talked good. about delays and everything. Um, yeah. And you also talked about the acetate. Uh, well, you talked about the bootleg. Sorry. Yeah. Now the bootleg, can you talk about the origins of the bootleg? Because many people yeah. don't know that John might've been one of the first Beatle bootleggers. Yeah. What happened was John made the, mistake of uh, giving it to somebody. What happened was there was a Canadian journalist actually from Australia and he went to <laughs> London to interview George Harrison 
And he dropped in John and Yoko's office at Apple and we're chatting with him to see how things were going. And uh, John got a phone call at that time. And the phone call happened to be from a guy who was producing this rock and roll event in Toronto. And so basically John asked this guy, since he was Canadian, you know, is this guy on the level? What can you, you know, can you tell me? And he said, yeah, he's on the level. And John decided to go and of course play at the Toronto rock and roll festival. And when John got back from the festival, uh, the guy was still there and uh, his name, I'm just looking it up because I have a terrible many Richie York was his name and Richie York dropped by to see John and John, I guess, you know, told him about how much fun he had there. And as a present gave him an acetate, which had <laughs> songs from get back. And of yeah. course, John being innocent, you know, had no idea that somebody might actually, you know, do something with it. And apparently Richie, uh, brought it by the radio station, uh, one of the radio stations, and they made a tape. Although we also think maybe Richie made a tape and brought the tape to the radio station because it only has one of the two tracks. So the problem with that particular bootleg is, you know, you only get one half of the stereo tracks. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, that, that was one of the sources. So what happens is it's played in Canada, and a Buffalo radio station gets a strange call from a Canadian, some guy who probably taped it off the air, and says, hey, I got the, some Beatles songs. You interested in buying them? So they send their program director north of the border. Buffalo's close to the border. He gives a guy 100 bucks. He gets the tape, brings it back, and he plays it. Well, what happens is there's another disc jockey at a station in Boston, and he had been having tapes that an underground DJ from L.A. had given him <laughs> of get-back material that Derek Taylor had given him. And they were, and they were actually different. They were high quality, but they weren't to get back bootleg per se, but they were songs from the session. So in other words, he comes on and he puts that on the air. And of course, people take that. And the next thing you know, the bootleggers start putting out bootlegs of it. And that's kind of how it all got started. But it all happened with uh, John being very naive and thinking, if I give this to Richie York, why would Richie York give it to somebody who would put it on the air? Hmm. Bruce, Bruce, I have a question, but we, you know, just to get back to let a long and winding road for a second. Yeah. Uh, as, as the guy who's uh, focused on the American releases with many of your books, long and winding road was only released in the United States. Was that done? So Paul wouldn't hear it and maybe <laughs> wouldn't think about it because that's one of the reasons he sues the Beatles down the road. Uh, but he also was released as a single in the States only. It wasn't released in Great Britain. And I was wondering, was there a, a reasoning behind that? I think it may have been more of a case of um, Phil Spector respecting the fact that in England, singles were considered something separate. And if they were on an album, they generally didn't get released. Uh, he initially did that, as you recall, with Come Together and Something, where it was not released as a single in the UK initially. And after it did so well in the States, they decided to do it in the UK but since people by then had bought the album, the single, of course, didn't sell that many copies. I think it was a case maybe of Alan Klein coming in and saying, you know, that we do singles in the U.S. and not so much in the U.K. So th that's what I think it is. Because I could see Alan Klein saying, well, Paul hates it tremendously. Let's put it out as a single. Yeah. Well, you know, you don't like it either, do you, Rob? <clears throat> I've never liked that song at all. I, I hate the overproduction. I I the only version I really like is the Wings Over America version. It's mm -hmm. the only one I really ever liked. Mm. Yeah. So, hmm. 
So also, I, I wanted to just ask you, you said you went on a on a trip to, is it East Africa? Yes, East Africa. With, with your parents. Yeah. Uh, talk about that trip and, and how the Beatles came into that trip. Yeah, it was really great because from reading Rolling Stone, I knew that the album in the UK came with this big book. So I wanted to get that. So we flew into London and we actually had like a, about a four or five hour layover. And my dad said, well, why don't we go into London? And we just woke up to a cab driver and said, you know, how much do you charge us to drive us around London for a while and get us back to make our flight? So we drived around and he's showing us all the sites. And I said, I'd like to see Carnaby Street. And then I said, I'd like to go to a record store. So I went into the record store and I asked for the uh, Let It Be album. And it was three pounds. And my parents said, you know, oh, that's kind of expensive, isn't it? And I said, well, my birthday's coming up. And they said, and you're going to have to lug it through Africa. I, I don't care. I want it. So I went ahead and I got it and went home. And of course, I played it only once or twice because I already had the U.S. pressing and I didn't want to scratch up the, you know, the British pressing. And I looked through the booklet until it fell apart, of course, like they all did. True. And then many years later, I was at a um, Beatle Fest and I was talking to a couple of people and I said that I had the Let It Be album, but, you know, mine was on Parlophone and I had bought it you know, in 1970. And they said, Oh, no, 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 no. You got it much later than that. And they said, No, I bought it in 1970. And everyone said, No, 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 that's not possible. Or maybe you mixed it up, you know, over the years. I said, No, I did not. Jim Hansen, the Blue Jay Way taps me on the shoulder. He says, Bruce, I believe you, I think. <laughs> he says, is the prefix on it start with one P or two P's? You know, How the hell would I remember that? <laughs> so when I went home, I looked at it, and to be slightly crude, it was the happiest time I ever saw a pee pee. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, now as we get older, it's happy too. <laughs> happy too. So I, I, I called up, uh, I called up Jim, and I said, "Jim, it does have a double p prefix." He said, "Bruce, you for some reason in London got the rare export copy that's worth over two thousand dollars." Wow. Do you still have it? I still do. And I told my parents that and they said, are you going to sell it? I said, of course not. I carried it over Africa for three weeks. But see, but they the just wanted the uh, they wanted the proceeds. But they they, said, want, they want that money back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, since since 1970, with inflation, you actually paid two thousand dollars for it then. Nah, inflation isn't that bad. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know why, did, why did we get the, the why did the U.S. not get the box? Do we know? Uh, yeah, I, I think it was just. um a case of Alan Klein wanting to sell as many copies as possible and thinking yeah. that a higher price would frighten people away. And United Artists probably thought the same thing. Yeah. So they ended up selling like 4 million copies pretty quick. And so I think it was strictly economics. And um, as nice as it would have been to have the book, I think if you look at it from a business standpoint, they very well may have made the right choice. Yeah. But I mean, by then too, I would imagine a lot of the, you know, the creative control with regards to that project the Beatles had cut it loose. So I don't think they were, it wasn't like they were going to pipe in and say, you know, oh, we really want to have the book in all markets. They, they you know, they were kind of yeah. out of it by then. But yeah, Alan Klein was running the show. And I yeah. think uh, if Alan said, look, this is, I think we need to do this in the States. At that point, John would have said, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce, I had a question about just sort of the, and I guess this goes into the later part of the book where you're talking to people about the experience of, you know, how would it be, you know, was reflected in all the different, you know, in the different countries and in the different, you know, how it fit into context. But 
I feel like Let It Be's always had a kind of an odd place among Beatle fans, Beatle collectors, especially mm -hmm. through the generations as fans have come and gone. It's almost as though it, um, it, it, at first when you know when when you were experiencing it as a first generation fan, mm -hmm. you know, it was the the and especially because you were following it so closely with what was going on with Get Back. Yeah. Now the casual fan, even then. And maybe the person that wasn't reading Rolling Stone wasn't doing that. So it suddenly appears this, quote, new phase Beatles album, yeah. you know, and the people who were in the know and had been reading Rolling Stone and had been seeing the articles about kind of the idea that it was now kind of over. Um, and granted, you know, the announcement had sort of come out, too. So it was do you sort of like in, in the book, can you reflect some of the ways where you kind of show the the up and down of what? let it be meant to the different um the, the different countries the different generations of beetle family did you sort of feel that as well when you, when you were putting the book together yeah i mean in my case you know to me the album was a disappointment because it was the first time i bought a beatles album where i really felt like lifting the needle off of one or two of the tracks and i never really <laughs> felt that way about a beatles album and so that kind of threw me about it and, Which ones, uh, by the way, just I didn't mean to interrupt, but for instance, if you had to give me one. Long and Winding Road and Let It Be in particular. What, those you wanted to lift off? I did not want to hear them, no. I couldn't. <laughs> I didn't like the way they sounded. Oh, OK. Uh, I, I love the songs. OK. But I didn't I, like I it. Yeah. You know, the yeah. songs are great. Yeah. But I would rather listen to the single. What I found interesting was that people, second generation fans in particular, love the album version and don't like the single version nearly as much. And I ask mm. why. And they say, well, that guitar solo has such balls. It's great. Yeah. And But I think also they probably heard that first because they didn't go out and buy the Let It Be 45. You got it. When they were rediscovering the Beatles, they bought the Let It Be album. So therefore, their right. first hearing of Let It Be probably was on the album. And when they heard the single and George does this tasty laid back guitar solo, it's like, oh, that's wimpy. I prefer the other. So I think that has part to do with it. But if you think of all the different variations, you have the, the Get Back bootlegs. You have the Let It Be album itself that comes out. You have the um, anthology tracks, which you can take those and do your own version of Let It Be. You have Let It Be Naked. Mm. And when Let It Be Naked came out, I absolutely loved the way it sounded. And when I started doing the book, something strange happened. As much as I loved the way it sounded, to me, it had no soul. None. Agree, so, agree with you. And so I sat there and I said, you know, the tragic thing about this is the Beatles have never optimized that session. Every release is brilliant and flawed at the same time. I'm very curious as to what will happen in the event Giles Martin does something with it. And, um, you know, I would hope that that would get closer to, because I suspect um, his mix on Long and Winding Road and Let It Be would be very different than what Phil Spector did. And if yeah. that's the case, maybe we finally get that Let It Be album that is to me satisfying from start to finish. So it's, I have my fingers crossed. It's, it's also too, I think where, where I was thinking too, Bruce, was the idea that, you know, we saw it, in context, even as a second generation fan, but somebody that came into the Beatles, say, 71, 72, 
we saw it as that was like the breakup album. Yeah. You know, and that was the, you know, what was Roy Carr and Tony Tyler, the cardboard tombstone, you know, yeah. but in later generations, you know, where they, where they stopped and weren't able to listen to the albums in order as they happened, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to be curious to see whether or not this leads to kind of like a rediscovery of the record, just as a piece of music, mm-hmm. you know, just as an album, as opposed to us, the mm-hmm. hardcore Beatle fans always having the context that it indicated the end. Uh, you know, and, and I think with me, I really think if there is a Giles Martin mix, I think I'll find that satisfying because I've loved the work that, you know, that he's done so far. So, and then of course, you know, when we start talking about the original film and that five minute clip that everybody's going gaga over, yeah, um, you know, that will be interesting too. <clears throat> when we get to the film, because I have a lot to say, you know, about that as well. Well, one thing, Bruce, about this, like, excuse me, Mitch, for a second. Sure. One thing that really bothered me about Let It Be Naked, I actually like most of it. I just hated that they didn't put that coder on Get Back. And they said, yes. well, it wasn't yeah. on the original thing. But, you know, wrong, the wrong, other wrong. Songs, yeah. the other songs had different parts flown in from different versions. Look, look, I, will, I, will tell you that, I will tell you that when I first heard it, and I heard it, actually, I heard it in a BMW being written, driven by a capital executive. He had gotten an advanced CD of it, but he was afraid if he played it in the office and someone from Capitol saw I was hearing it, he could get in trouble. So we went out to lunch and in his car, we listened to it. And I was like, where's the coda? So many years later, I was over at Abbey Road about 2008 when they were doing the remasters. And I talked to Alan Rouse and I said, you know, and Alan was just, you know, when I was introduced to him, he was a wonderful man. And I was told he can be very grumpy and very this and very that. And I said, Alan, I understand you can dish it out. Can you take it? He said, absolutely. I said, well, we're going to get along great. And he <laughs> says, well, you, what, what could you possibly complain about? And I said, no coda on Get Back. And he said, well, there, there was no coda on that tape. I said, Alan, how many takes of Get Back are there? About 20? He said, Yes. I said, and how many of those tapes have codas, Alan? About 17 or 18? Yes. And I said, and what does George say at the end of the song, Master Take, if you let the tape play out? He goes, and I said, he says, we missed the ending on that one, didn't we? <laughs> yes. And I said, and when Paul worked to have the single come out that Easter, what did Paul add to the end of that take, Alan? A coda. <laughs> so yeah. Alan said, Bruce, mm-hmm. what do you want me to do? Make you a private copy with a coda? I said, yes, I'd like that. <laughs> Unfortunately, he never did. But uh, I agree 100%. Get Back needs the coda. Definitely. Yeah, it's a half Definitely. a song without it. <laughs> and you know what? Just getting on that theme of the Beatles, the Let It Be Naked, I need John's little beginning before two of us i just do yeah I don't, that's why i said it, it has no soul without it the right. I, but bear in mind the object of that project was let's pretend that they did let it be as a normal beatles album just like abbey road where we're going to pick the best take of the best songs right that's what they did yeah. so mission accomplished for what they did but yeah. isn't it strange that having done that, as you said, Bruce, you ended up with something with no soul? Yeah. That's yeah. really odd. Yeah. And Best I mean, take- and I didn't realize it at the time because it sounded so spectacular. But when I did the book and played it from start to finish, it was like, 
Oh boy, thou hast no soul. Well, look, look at yeah, I would have, I, I would have okay. smacked somebody upside the head for the fly on the wall disc. That's what. <laughs> why? Why? This literally minutes, on my wall. Wow. Just, Twenty minutes of my life I never get back. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have a two-part question. Um, first, first part is there were some events that were supposed to happen that you talk about that that never happened. Uh, like the Beatles showing up on Sullivan yeah. just to shake hands, uh, attending the premiere, which we'll get into, and the TV special. Um, but also after that, I would like you to talk about how the Beatles Again album fits in to the chronology of where we are to get to Let It Be. Yeah. Well, let's do the second part first, because, um, you know, I think everybody was standing around waiting for this Get Back album, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's like this new album uh, called The Beatles Again. And then when you pulled the record out, you know, this is The Beatles Again. But then somewhere else it said, hey, Jude. And you didn't know what the name of the record even was, uh, which was kind of strange. And some people said it was done, you know, just to kind of, you know, tide you over to the next. It was actually done because Alan Klein saw a way to make The Beatles some money. They had signed a new contract. And basically, he went to Alan Steckler, who was his assistant at ABCO, and said, you know, is there something we can put out with the Beatles? And he said, well, there are a lot of Beatles songs that were never on an album. And so he went ahead and put the project together. So that's what happened there. The, um, I think one of the fan recollections in my book was someone who said that his mom went to the record store and brought him back the new Beatles album. And he was expecting, you know, the get back album. And it was something with songs he already had. So he was very disappointed. Because you, it, there's nowhere on the album, actually, that it says the name. Hey, Jude. I mean, I know the slicks that were never put out had it, but I don't think it says the Beatles, Hey, Jude, or the Beatles again, anywhere except maybe the spine. But yeah. it's not on the front or the back. Yeah. And, and then some know, of them later came with stickers that said, hey, Jude. right. Hey, Jude. And those. Yeah. If you have that now and you got some money there. But, yeah. you know, it's funny because when I got it, being an eight year old kid, I loved it because, first of all, it's the Beatles. So and I thought it was the Beatles at that point re-recording their stuff. I didn't know it was just a compilation. So I turned it over. I put it on. I said, wow, they sound the same. You know, obviously <laughs> it was it was just that. But but it but was stereo. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. There was some true stereo there, um, but it was so I, I thought it was a really good album. I just had no idea yeah, yeah. what it was supposed to be at that time, you know, and, and also the uh, in Spain. I, I know we know that, you know, this in Spain, the ballad of John Yoko was actually not on that album. The Beatles again. Yeah, it was. Uh, I remember. Uh, yeah, I remember um, when the ballad of John and Yoko was on the debut of the TV show, the music scene. I remember they showed the Ballad of John and Yoko. And when John went Christ, they bleeped it out and they showed a road sign with an explanation point on it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's kind of cool. So talk about the events that uh, we, we never got to see. Yeah, or- these were these were ideas that Alan Klein had that were never going to happen. You know, first of all, there were problems of could you even get John and George in the U.S. because of the, you know, the drug arrests. So that was an issue to begin with. And then why would they want to go to the Ed Sullivan show and shake hands with a bunch of people? That just, you know, it was, it is never, it was Alan Klein's vision. I mean, he wanted to put the Beatles on tour. He wanted to do a lot of things to make money that the Beatles just weren't up for. But would they, you, you think had things again, speculation, had things been a little more 
acrimonious in during the filming, do you think maybe the Beatles would have considered a little tour? Uh, I know that Paul certainly wanted that. I mean, the the way Get Back happened to begin with was that Paul got really excited about the Hey Jude Revolution videos they had shot at Twickenham and how much fun it was to perform in front of an audience, even though they were just lip sync, well, they were, you know, they were actually singing to a recorded tape. And he loved it. And he that, you know, he it was his idea of we're gonna do a concert at the Roundhouse and we'll do, you know, a bunch of songs from the White Album and some rock and roll standards. And then it was, oh, well, we'll do new songs. And that's how the whole project evolved. Uh, Paul certainly was pushing it. Um, if Alan Klein had not stepped in and the Eastmans were running things, you know, maybe maybe they would have gone back on tour. You know, who knows? I mean, George, even after the group broke up, was still talking about, oh, yeah, we'll get together again and record another album. So I don't think any of the Beatles, except maybe Paul and John, really knew it was over when uh, Paul made his famous statements. Uh, Bruce, uh, what about uh, Glenn Johns? How does he get picked to compile the record? And he had a, a, a bad thing about picking the maybe the bad versions. Yeah, of, Glenn, well, He seemed happy to pick the songs that weren't as thought out or played out the way they maybe should have been. Yeah, here's the thing. Glenn Johns was brought on by Paul to serve as a balance engineer. And, um, you know, he was over at Twickenham with them. George Martin went to Twickenham occasionally when they moved to Apple. Uh, both Glenn Johns and George Martin were there for the latter sessions in particular. But um, at the very first sessions where they were just messing around and doing stuff like Save the Last Dance for Me and things, Glenn Johns just fell in love with that stuff. And he would go over to Olympic and mix some tapes. And so basically... You know, he was pleased with what um, he was hearing and thought it would be fun and got this idea. You know, let's just do the Beatles in the studio kind of loose and all. And the problem was when he went to compile the album, he favored those versions. In other words, logically, if the Beatles did the song Long and Winding Road on the 26th of January and on January 31st, chances are they would do it better on January 31st because they would have been rehearsing it more. Same thing with two of us. And so some of the versions that he picked were earlier versions that he thought were fun and spontaneous, but they weren't as good. For example, I've got a feeling you've got a great rooftop version, yet he picks an early version where the song falls out before the best part of the song, which is John and Paul singing in counterpoint. So I, and then two of us, he picks a slow plotting version rather than the upbeat version that Spectre picked. So I think that the, the big flaw for Glenn Johns and his downfall was not picking the best version of the, each song. Definitely. Definitely. All right, we're going to, uh, those, are, those are the acetates that went out though. You know, the bootlegs. Yeah, the bootlegs. Unfortunately. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're talking with Bruce Spicer, the author of many books, but the Beatles finally let it be. Uh, the latest book, and we will return to talk about Let It Be the Film in just a moment. Hi, folks. This is Tony from Fab Four Free For All. As Mitch has mentioned several times, the cast of Fab Four Free For All do not profit in any way doing these shows for all of you. In fact, we actually lose money because of studio time and other production expenses. Now, we have looked into show sponsors, but for a number of reasons, 
we've decided it would be in the best interest of all of us, including you, our listeners, not to have sponsored ads in our shows. So what we've done is set up a Patreon account. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that allows artists to obtain funding from patrons on a recurring basis. Now, it can be as little or as much as you think you can send to us for the work that we put into providing quality Fab Four free-for-all shows. Now, we know that we have thousands of worldwide listeners, and if each of you just contributed a dollar a month, that's just 25 cents per episode, we would have enough to retire and not have to do these shows. <laughs> Sorry. Seriously, though, we've gotten some great feedback from everyone about how much these shows mean to you, and we feel the same way. But it would be nice if we could break even in terms of costs so that we can continue to bring these shows to you in a timely fashion. Yeah, I know, we can be delayed every once in a while, but that's because, as John Lennon so beautifully said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. But we do vow to make every effort to have a quality show to you every week. We only ask that everyone go and visit Patreon.com to at least check out what it's all about and to see if you can contribute a little something in return for all the hard work and effort that we put into these shows for you. Just do a search for Fab Four Free For All and tell us that you give a buck about what we do. Thanks to all of you for being such great loyal listeners. And we're back on the Fab Four Free For All talking with author Bruce Spizer about uh, the Beatles' Let It Be and his new book, The Beatles, Finally, let it be um, out now on 498 Productions books, right? Yes. Oh, good. I got that right. 498. Yes, you, do, do you want to just tell people real quick what 498 means? Some people may not get get the joke yeah, or, the, uh, or get the meaning. The, well, the, the, the actual story about it was when I was going to do my first book, I, I was going to self-publish. I needed a company name. And I love the fact that the initial 45 released by the Beatles on VJ had the Beatles misspelled with two T's. So I was going to name the company Double T Productions. And when I applied with the Secretary of State for that, they said there's an oil drilling company in Louisiana called Double T Productions. And I was looking at the 45, and it had VJ498, which was a catalog number. So I said 498 Productions. All right, cool. But Very story, cool. Either but way. The, but the story gets crazier because uh -oh. at my very first Beetle Fest, I was staying at the Overflow Hotel, and I go to check in. I hadn't done the book yet, hadn't even thought of doing a book. And uh, when I got the room number, the room number I had was 498. I walk, I take the shuttle bus over to the fest, and the first record I buy is a copy of VJ 498 with Beatles misspelled on one side and spelled correctly on the other. Oh, wow. And then my driver's license has 498 in it. And my parents' checking account, which when they got older, I was monitoring, also had 498 in it. <laughs> $498? Well, not that. Oh, I numbers. Know, so the, the numbers follow me around. That's pretty uh, Just real quick. I know because we, we do have collectors in the Fab Four Free For All. Um, what did you buy that first copy, by the way, with the, the misspelling on one? And because it, it must have been a long time ago at first Beetle Fest. Yeah, it was uh, I bought it in 1997, I believe. And I probably paid about uh, 1500 for it. Which oh, was, still. So it was still a lot at that time. It was. Yeah, it was wow. because it was pretty, pretty rare. Very and I remember cool. um, after I showed it to Gary Hine, he offered to buy it from me for a profit so he could sell it for even more. Uh, I'm well, about to sell it. Oh, Still wow. That's it. Pretty, that, that, that is a rarity. That's pretty cool. So we're going to talk about Let It Be, the, the film now. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I remember, I remember seeing the, the clips uh, for the film of, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the song, let it be. And uh, there was one more. I'm sorry. I, I, two of us, two of us. Thank you. But it, that was on the Ed Sullivan uh, special in March of 70. Yeah. Right? Ed Sullivan salutes the Beatles, which I also taped off the uh, television to get a nice clean version of two of us. Yeah. Talk. Could you talk a little bit about that? How, do you know how that came about? Cause it was so wild There's Steve and Edie. And for those who don't know, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. And, yeah. and there was just a bizarre, the Edward Valella, I believe dancing to, which was actually kind of nice, but a weird, and you don't see it at all anymore. You could find it on like YouTube a little bit, but uh, why have we never seen that again? Uh, I don't. I think probably the rights might be a little bit tricky. I don't know. I don't think Sofa Productions has put that one out. Certainly no. not separately. Right. And I mean, and you know, look, they wanted to do something special, and with Ed Sullivan, he had done a lot for them, obviously, over the years. And you know, they weren't going to show up at the show or anything. But you could have these two film clips, and the idea was it would be a special saluting the Beatles. I mean, you had a show of the musical Lennon and McCartney that came out in the UK a few years earlier where the Beatles actually showed up and played, you know, live on that show. So I think it was, you know, not a bad idea. I mean, I liked it because I got to get an idea what the film was going to look like. By the time the film had come out, I had seen four songs, you know, let it be two of us get back and don't let me down. And in those days, I mean, my memory was such that I remembered exactly what those clips looked like. Hmm. I remembered at the end of get back. I was also on the Glenn Campbell good time hour. Oh, okay. Do you remember, Bruce? Were those I because I recently saw the clips, but I can't remember. Were those the same cuts from the film, or were those unique cuts? Um, the get back one was pretty much the same. The don't let me down was a unique one where it mixed stuff from the studio and stuff on the rooftop, and it was just kind of a hodgepodge of things. And I don't think it's ever been seen since, except on uh, you know bootlegs. It's certainly yes. you know the. The one collection does not use the one that was on no, the Glenn no. Campbell Good Time Hour. And the Sullivans, the, the ones they use on Sullivan, those were directed in the film, though, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when did you first get aware that the film was now coming out? Because that didn't come out until later. Yeah. Well, the film itself came out, um, you know, like in the late spring. And by that time, we had known that the Beatles had broken up. And so in some ways it was tough going to see the film because you knew the Beatles had broken up. And then there was this woman here, Yoko, that was there. And you wondered, did she cause the breakup or not? And, and of course, that would be very unfair to think, but it was only natural to think that. The first part of the film I found kind of depressing. I mean, they were in this big sound stage, and uh, you could tell it was a sour vibe. I mean, George and Paul get into this argument. But then when they go over to Apple, the vibe changes. And, you know, they have the, you know, the music for For You Blue, which is kind of an upbeat blues number, as George described, you know, a happy 12-bar blues. And um, Billy Preston's there. And, you know, the whole vibe changes. And, of course, the rooftop concert. So that as depressing as I found the first third or so of the film, I walked out of the theater happy because of the rooftop concert. And also, once again, getting to hear my favorite song, you know, the long and winding road without Phil Spector strings. So I really, overall, I really enjoyed the film. Yeah. But, the first, the first third is, is so it, when they do like, you've really got a hold on me and they, they, it's like they never played the song before. And 
you know, there's a lot of things in that first third that are just like, is, is this the Beatles? Mm-hmm. And then, then you're right. Then the rooftop and the, uh, the, the studio session afterwards, which was actually before, before the film. um, you know, they're playing full songs. They're ha- they look like they're having a little bit of fun, especially on the rooftop. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, the rooftop was a great way to end the movie. Absolutely. And, you know, so, so. As I said, you know, um, the, the film experience, uh, just there was something somber about it, knowing the Beatles had broken up, but the rooftop concert for me saved it. And I enjoyed most of the film. And when you walked out with, you know, that classic line of, you know, Hope we pass the audition, and then you have a little coda of "Get Back" with Paul laughing and having fun, and the whole thing was just, you know, it was a good experience on the on the way home, shall we say? There you go, Mitch. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, you know, we we neglected to talk about Phil Spector's involvement on the album. I wanted to go back. Just I'm sorry about. We'll get back to the film, so to speak. But I, I did want to talk about Phil Spector's involvement. Can we talk oh, about that a while, Bruce? Yeah, I'll take a shot at it. Oh, sorry. Oh, anyway, um, here's the thing. Uh, yeah, here's the thing about it. Um, Alan Klein was concerned when he heard the Get Back tapes, and he felt, you know, Abbey Road is uh, his assistant, Alan Steckler said, was so smooth it just oozed out of the speakers. And here were these rough tapes. And he wanted them polished a bit. And in the back of his mind, he's thinking, you know, yeah, Phil Spector could do something with that. And as it turns out, Phil Spector happened to be in London. George Harrison knew he was in London. And John calls up George, you know, I've got this song I just wrote. I want to get a bunch of people together. It's called Instant Karma. And George was like, well, Phil Spector's in town. Why don't we see if he'll produce it? So they get Phil Spector in, and Phil Spector produces the Instant Karma single. And that session went really well. And so based on that, George and John got the idea, and Klein may have suggested it to him, or they just subliminally got it. But anyway, they thought, well, you know, what if we give these tapes to Spector? And so John and George invite him to do it. And at the initial remix sessions that take place at Abbey Road, Alan Klein and George Harrison attend those sessions. And then later on, when he does the orchestra session on April 1, which of course we know is April Fool's Day, Ringo is there because he wants a bigger drum sound. Spectre always liked two drummers. And so Ringo's playing drums with himself, essentially, uh, from the recorded tracks in the orchestra. And the session was pretty crazy. And Ringo kind of had to pull Phil aside and tell him to cool it, you know. Um, But anyway, that was it. And then he finished the mixes the next day. So it was a fairly quick mixing, remixing job that Spectre did. But it was done at uh, John and George's uh, suggestion. Paul, of course, was not made aware of it and was not terribly pleased when he heard what Spectre did to the songs, particularly The Long and Winding Road. Yeah, there's that famous memo that Paul wrote, huh? Yeah, I mean, where he says, you know, he lays out a few of the things and says at the very end, and and don't do it again. Yeah. (laughs) Which is kind of really funny. Yeah. And what about the overproduced line? Yeah, that was great. Uh, The the album itself, when you looked at the label, it said, reproduced for disc by Phil Spector. And that angered George Martin, because George Martin was like, you know, I produce these sessions. And, And then EMI said, yeah, but you weren't the last person. So he said, so then I told him, well, why don't you just put on a produced by George Martin, overproduced by Phil Spector? He mm-hmm. said they didn't like that idea. 
Uh, hey, Rob, you, Rob, so you look things, like you want to say something. If you think about it, so many things come out of this get back session. I mean, it was you know pushed through by Paul. Oh, we got to go back. Let's do it live because, you know, let's be honest, White Album wasn't as together as maybe they wanted to be. Um, but it also leads to so many, like, tangents. You got Alan Klein coming in. You got mm-hmm. Abbey Road getting done because they realized what happened with Let It Be is not the way to end the careers of the Beatles. Uh, the Beatles again album ends up coming out because the, the delay with uh, the Let It Be um, album. Uh, Spectre gets hired by John for a bunch of records and yeah. by George for All Things Must Pass and then a couple of uh, tracks after that. So it's it's interesting how this album or this, these sessions led, you know, tre- uh, branched off into many different things over the next few years for the so now solo Beatles or soon to be solo Beatles. Yeah. Oh, it, it is a very fascinating thing. And, you know, you wonder what would, first of all, if Klein hadn't come in, it would have been a TV special. And obviously it was much better to make it a movie. There's a lot more money in a movie than selling the rights to the BBC and NBC or ABC and a few things like that. So that was a really good idea. Alan Klein had, um, you know, un- unfortunately I kind of wish they would have left well enough alone even though the original Get Back album had its flaws, it still was kind of cool. It had a lot of soul and character. So, yeah. And I have a question about the the uh, Let It Be album. Um, you, you said uh, United Artists released in the states only. Yep. Is that okay? But why didn't why was Hard Day's Night the only one that had the United Artists label on it? Was there? You well, know? you know, if we go back to the film deal, for some strange reason, the film deal that Brian signed with United Artists it was a three film deal. That was easy. But the weird part about it was that United Artists, um, the guy who was interested in getting the film for UA was uh, interested in doing something for United Artists records. His idea was we'll probably lose money on a hard day's night, but you know, we'll make money on the film soundtrack in the States. So the idea was that they had two soundtrack albums. And so a hard day's night is your first soundtrack album. Help is on Capitol. Yellow Submarine isn't on United Artists, which means that the Let It Be album is on United Artists Records. It is pressed, however, with Apple labels for the same reason that the Beatles were on Capitol, but they were pressed with Apple labels. So they had told United Artists they wanted an Apple label on it, and that was no issue. Why does it have a red label rather than green? Alan, yeah. Alan Steckler, who worked with Alan Klein at Abco, felt special albums should have special labels. Best, it had a red label. Why does All Things Must Pass have an orange label? He told George, this is a special album. It should have a special colored label. <laughs> George picked orange. All Beatle records were special. They would have all had a different color. Well, you know, yeah, you know. <laughs> That's great. Right. But talk about, do you know anything about the pirated record? Because I think there were more pirated records. There were more pirates, yeah. 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 yeah, what happened was that United Artists, after about two or so years, took the album out of its catalog. And so there was a void in the market. You could not go and buy Let It Be. So bootleggers thought, well, we'll just put it out ourselves. And it was that way for a while. And then when Capital ended up buying the catalog of United Artists Records, then Capital went ahead and put it out as a you know non-gatefold album. And Capital put out uh, Let It Be, I think, in the later 70s. So it ended up eventually getting on Capital anyway. But that's why there were so many bootlegs was there was a void in the market. Is there a way to tell easily tell what oh, you yeah. have? 
look at the label. If the, if the label's kind of a washed out red, it's garbage. Yeah. Yeah, and if the text is smeared, I mean, there's so many. There were so many bootlegs. So, so getting back to the uh, the, the movie, uh, a subject close to Tony's heart, mm. uh, and some things that everybody's heard of, but maybe not many people know exactly what we all mean when we say it. But the Nagra reels, the, oh, the yeah. story of the. Yeah, I know Tony. The Ooh. story of the Nagra. <laughs> Can we explain what the Nagra reels were and are? And why they're important to hear. Yeah, well, when you're doing the film, they had cameras, but you also needed sound. And rather than just have a, you know, a microphone hooked up to a camera, the idea was they were going to have tape recorders. And they had two of them. And the idea was uh, these reels were going to run out after, I think it was about eight, eight, nine minutes or something. And when, when that one ran out, they'd hopefully have another one running at that time so that between the two tape machines, you'd have everything. Uh, you didn't quite get everything, but you got most. For the most part, it worked well. But the problem was, if you were mid-song and the tape ran out on the A recorder, and then you were relying on the B recorder, because these machines were in different places in the you know, studio or in the soundstage, uh, it sounded totally different and the balance was off. So there are some problems when you go from the A reel to the B reels. Mm -hmm. But you did get a lot of really good stuff. I mean, the ideal takes is that the entire song is on an A reel or on a B reel. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, some of the better performances you might lose mid-song. But why it's important is that somebody absconded those tapes or bought them or who knows how they got them. And all of a sudden, they start leaking out these bootlegs and, and incredible stuff that nobody had ever heard before. The stuff that wasn't in the movie, wasn't on the album, wasn't on the first bootlegs and, and there they were and the ultimate collection that you can get now is 83 discs of you know just about everything and yes i've listened to all 83 discs and yes a lot of it is garbage and there's some hidden gems in there though some really good stuff in there as well a lot well, of people like the uh i lost my little girl which is five yeah. and a half minutes but it's yeah. it's just john remembering you know two lines of it and but just doing it differently for, and having fun and it's good quality so that's kind of cool yeah. too isn't yeah. it i like that one that's that's one of the ones that i would say if someone said you know pick about 40 of these things i i certainly have to pick that one i mean they did a lot of old stuff and then of course you know you had the weaklings when they did their their album they picked one of those things off the Nagro hills as well so I would be curious to, to see, Bruce, how much canteen footage, how much of the, the cafe, cafeteria footage. Uh, I know that uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg had hidden cameras around, and we know there were hidden microphones around. And there are some stuff on those Nagra reels, and our listeners know because we've talked about it, that is absolutely mind-blowing that happens in the cafeteria particularly the conversations between between Paul and Linda and Michael Lindsay Hogg, and then they're joined by Ringo later and stuff. But, you know, there's that specifically, I always think of that scene where, you know, Paul, whether he's joking or not, proposes the idea of having the, the live news, you know, media around Twickenham. And then, you know, the final tear off sheet from the AP being this just in Beatles break up, <laughs> you know, but I'm wondering with with what we've seen in the Peter Jackson film and that five mind blowing joyful <laughs> minutes, is he going to temper it with some of the the factual stuff that that 
you know, let it be. I, you know, I, I rave about how I just can't stand Michael Lindsay Hogg as a director. I think he just went in there with an agenda and he, he made a, he made a documentary that was going to show what we already knew had happened, you know, in a way. And, and I, I just, there's so many things I can't stand about the film, but with Peter Jackson doing kind of a delightfully kind of finding all his wonderful footage, you know, are we going to have the moment where George says, you know, see you around the clubs, you know, are we going to have, no, he never says that. No, he, well, he, he <laughs> sort of says it, but he says, Basically, you know, he, he walks out and says, you know, call in me and get a few replacements. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the, the best is when, when Paul says to Maureen, learn a D E and you're in <laughs> I love that. That's like one of my favorite bits. But but are we going to see any of that, or are we? I mean, gonna... what what I don't know is whether the cameras were rolling on that. We know, but that's tapes what I'm were. curious. If the cameras were rolling, were the cameras necessarily rolling? Not necessarily. Uh, they may have of. been, you know. And uh, look, I I hope he doesn't do a total whitewash on it, um, you know. And I I think that he probably will have a little bit of the tension, but and I think doing so would probably be a good idea because if you have that little tension at the beginning. And then at the end, you've got them all dancing around arm in arm. And, you know, you, you, yeah. you know that's what life's like when you're with, uh, you know, with a group of people all the time like that. With brothers. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's like the four of us tonight. You know, there was a time when we said, Mitch, your, your voice sounds too low. <laughs> Yet at the end, we're all happy. <laughs> happy because I, I muted myself and I'm leaving. <laughs> why, why don't you get... Wait, should I now say, why don't you get Ken? You will get Ken. <laughs> oh, 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 come on. I'm just kidding. No, but but I mean, it's true. You're absolutely right, Bruce. It turns that idea of that movie now, it's starting to make it storytelling. Instead yeah. of it just being this, you know, this this documentary about the Beatles breaking up, now it becomes a story, you know? Yeah, and I, and I think, too, you know, the, the, from looking at the film, first of all, people were like, well, were you surprised? And I said, no. Because I had seen what he did with out of sync black and white World War One footage from like 1918, 1919, whatever. Yeah. And thought if he can do that, imagine what he can do with color 16 millimeter film. Yeah. You know, from 1969. Yeah, I think he can handle that. But let's talk about Michael Lindsay Hogg for a second. Tony mentioned the word agenda. Everybody says he had an agenda. Now, we know he was there for for everything. So, you know, he may, especially in light of what we saw the five minutes, which is just absolutely Ooh. joyful and incredible and colorful and unbelievable. Can't wait. But again, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg was there. So he might have done his 88 minutes based on what he saw and the vibe was. Now, you know, Peter Jackson has 56 hours after the fact. So he wasn't actually there. So somewhere but in the middle, you know, they always say somewhere in the middle is the truth. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, maybe I, I don't know if Peter Jackson is going to have his own agenda, but at some point, I mean, do they, do you think they have a gag order on, on Michael Lindsay Hogg right now? Because we haven't heard a word from him and you would have thought that he, you would have heard something considering after the five minutes, now everybody thinks, oh my God, what did Peter, what did Michael Lindsay Hogg give us? He gave us depressing crap. You would have thought that maybe he would have come out and defended himself. He very well may. I don't think there's any gag order on him. I don't, you know, but look, here's the thing about it. Um, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg experienced it. And also he was frustrated because he was concerned about, 
you know, the Beatles aren't going to do what I want them to do. I want them to do a concert. They're not going to do a concert. They're not going to do this. And he probably thought doing the film was a pain in the ass. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, they did have the ending of the film, the rooftop concert. But I think for him, it was probably very hard on him in a way that Peter Jackson, as you say, is sitting back and not doing the grunt work, but just looking at what was done. And sure, it's a different vibe for him. Um, but, you know, the, the work that they did on it, I mean, you know, the bribe, the, you know, the colors, I think just pops in a way that, you know, when they blew up the 16 millimeter to 32 millimeter film, you know, that, that process back then wasn't what you could do today. Now, you know, you digitalize it. And now when you blow it up, it looks gorgeous. And so that's part of the problem too. It wasn't shot to be a, a big screen film. It was shot to be seen on a small TV screen. And so that's part of the reason why it probably looked the way it looked. And also the, uh, the fact that when the movie gets re-released to video, from what we've heard, it will also include the original version of Let It Be, which yeah. has been waiting for 20 years, cleaned up and beautiful, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ever since really the anthology shows that, uh, you know, hey, this is, looks good and it sounds good. So he'll at least get to see his version they're not going to hide it, but they're oh, just no. a different version with it now. Yeah, no, and I think that's the right and responsible thing to do. You know, I jokingly said that they should also, on the Blu-ray disc, do a dub of the VHS tape so we can know the way it looked like back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Bruce, in your books, uh, what I love about it is you give, you give the fans a chance to um, react and tell how they felt either now or back then. Yeah. Is there anything in, in for this particular album, any fan recollection that really struck you in a in a either a good way, bad way, indifferent way, or or revelatory way? Well, I think the ones that I had the most fun doing was uh, I called up Ken Mansfield and I said, Ken, you were on the rooftop. You've written about being on the rooftop, but could you write me something different? And Ken did, and then I thought, okay, and I called up Kevin Harrington and. He had come up, he was a, you know, roadie basically held up the lyrics that John could, could read. And, uh, and he had written a, a book and there was a small portion of his book on the rooftop concert. And I asked him, I said, can I use an excerpt from that? He said, sure. So I did that. I talked to Chris O'Dell and I said, can I extract something from your book? Absolutely, Bruce. And Chris ended hers with looking over the edge and seeing the crowd. And I thought, well, I've got to get someone who was in the street. And then, you know, I knew somebody who was an Apple scruff and I shot her an email and I said, were you at the rooftop concert? You know, yes, I was. Can you write about it? So the first four Fran recollections have three people who are on the roof, segueing into Chris O'Dell looking at the crowd below and someone writing about what it was like to be in the crowd below. So that was kind of cool. I also got Lizzie Bravo to write something about, you know, singing the backing vocals, which was fun. And then I got a guy who sent me something from Russia and he had said that he had a tape. It was a VHS tape that had help him let it be on it. And uh, he was able to get the tape from somebody and eventually own it. And of course, you know, he would just watch it over and over again. So it's always fun when you get somebody from Russia telling you, you know, their experiences with the Beatles, because the Beatles were a worldwide uh, phenomena you know even in russia so you Absolutely. know i think those are the ones that really mean a lot to me 
You know, Bruce, uh, what I, I wish, uh, I mean, I wish I would have known about the book because my fa- one of my favorite memories, and I've told this before on, on other shows, uh, other, over our, our shows, you know, my grandmother, uh, a, a Yiddish uh, grandmother who was actually born in Argentina and spoke fluent Spanish and Yiddish, which wow. was very weird, <laughs> yeah, very, very odd. Uh, but she stopped liking the Beatles when they grew mustaches. Right. It, it just, you know, she was old school. And I'll never forget the day when we brought home the single of Let It Be uh, 1970. I went in, you know, you go into the store, you pick it out of the slot with, and you get a picture sleeve and you get happy and you go home. And I said to my grandmother, we're going to play this for you. And she looked at the picture sleeve and we had the big RCA console. And um, she said, I don't want to hear it because, you know, obviously they looked like a Ball's bunch of even. girls. They look well, like girls. Paul <laughs> even had the mustache and beard. He didn't look like cute little Paulie anymore. Uh, she said, I don't want to hear it. I said, Grandma, please. So she, she said, OK. She sat down. We played her whatever the three minutes plus of Let It Be. She absolutely loved it. But she wouldn't admit it to us. At the end, we said, what would you think? And she looked at us and went, Eh, it was all right. <laughs> we knew she loved it. It was right. such a, and, and then we put on the flip side and she ran out of, out of the room. <laughs> but it was such a great moment that I remember so strong because we lived in an up and down two yeah. family house. And, you know, that let it be was really for her, the last Beatle thing because Mitch, she didn't care about anything else. Was she sitting in a chair like the one behind me? And were you playing she actually record, was in like, a, on the record? I'll be honest, she was in a red crushed velvet chair. Of course. That, <laughs> so it did look like that. And but again, we had the big RCA console. Yeah, you know, that we have one, too. Yeah. My goodness. And it was a, it was a piece of furniture. It wasn't just a turntable, which was odd because I had my my suitcase turntable literally like 10 feet away. So I don't know why we had both, but you know, I, I guess we could play different things because my mother was playing Sinatra and the angels till, which she loved like crazy. And I was playing my stuff, but uh, that memory is so vivid. And I also tell the story about the Beatles again, you know, that my parents were splitting uh, July of 70. They were done officially. And prior to that, I think February was the Beatles again, right? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. You're not um, mistaken. Well, I'll never forget in New York City in the Daily News, there was a full page ad for the Beatles again or Hey Jude, whatever they called it at that point. But, you know, it was that album and then all the little albums at the bottom and said on sale. And my father, because uh, we had our uh, my friend uh, Bernie, his friend Bernie, owned the record shops at TSS, Times Square store. Uh, he ran my my mother didn't want my father in the house. So she she said to go out and buy that album for him now because, you know, they were mad at each other. So she didn't want him in the house. And he actually ran out and bought it for me. So I, I got it. You know, uh, um, I, I actually got it a couple of weeks, I think, prior to the actual release because Bernie owned the record store. But those two memories are just so vivid yeah. for this, you know, for this period for me. And then and the my father was- was me to see the, and the movie at the, at the drive in in Valley stream, just the two of us. And as an eight year old, I didn't love the movie uh, until later, but uh, it still was a chance to see the Beatles. Like you said, I still left happy because they played on the roof. So, and the roof was on my birthday, the rooftop. And that was the other recollection was January 30th is my birthday. So I think it was January 31st. The daily news had an article about the Beatles playing on the roof. And my Um, mother would always read and she, 
read me an article about it. And I said, oh, did they do it for my birthday? <laughs> they, they did not. Of course. <laughs> very did, vivid recollection. Of course they did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they did it just for you. Little Mitchie. No, no some unbelievable stuff. So what what is your favorite recollection of this time, Bruce? Uh, you know, to me, um, I really liked the, the bootleg, you know, taping it off the radio and having those songs, that forbidden fruit that I could listen to. That was a great memory. The Ed Sullivan show um, of seeing, you know, Let It Be and seeing that performed in two of us, you know, was very exciting for me. And uh, going out of the theater after the rooftop concert, I mean, I just left really upbeat, uh, you know, after sitting through the beginning and then it picks up steam. And uh, the rooftop concert is is a great way to try to remember the Beatles because, you know, prior to the what with that five minute clip we've seen of Peter Jackson, I don't know if I ever saw the Beatles looking happier, you know, than on that, you know, yeah. Yeah. The, the later phase Beatles anyway, not counting these 64 Beatles. Are you what are you hoping for with Get Back? I know we talked a little bit about it, but what do you really I know you said you don't want a, a whitewash, but are, are, are you thinking it's going to be like a three hour because, you know, he doesn't do any movies that are 88 minutes. No, I mean, I have no idea how long it's going to be, but I hope that the home version has extras that aren't in the theatrical version. I don't think it's going to be a Lord of the Rings type thing where he does a, a three hour movie. You know, I think it's probably if I had to guess, I'd guess about a two hour film, but I have no idea. I have not. I've only seen those five minutes. Uh, I keep trying to justify for health reasons going to uh, New Zealand, but I can't quite justify it. <laughs> because we know that we know that, you know, when he showed the reels of 56 hours, I just wanted to jump through the, you know, the computer and and get into that studio and see every single one, you know, no, I, no matter honestly, how they are. I would have volunteered to go through everything with him if he had needed an assistant. Yeah. So so tell people where they can get your book and books, please. Yes, I have a very simple website. It's just Beetle, B-E-A-T-L-E dot net. So Beetle without the S dot net. And of course, uh, you can get the uh, the new book, The Beatles Finally Let It Be. And um, on the album series books, I have collector's editions, which cost a little bit more, but they come with cases and posters and other goodies. And they're signed and numbered and all that other good stuff. And by the way, if you order the book through my website, regardless, you can always request personalization. I always sign the books because I know people can, quite frankly, they can probably buy the book cheaper on Amazon if they have Amazon Prime and all that other stuff. Of course, Amazon doesn't bubble wrap the books when they ship them and they probably get dented corners. But if you do order from my website, they will be signed by me. And if you want personalized and um, quite frankly, I make more money when people buy from my website. But if you do buy the book at Amazon or elsewhere and you see me at a Beetle Fest and you say, will you sign the book? Of course, I'll sign the book. So just buy the book. You'll enjoy it. And what about, Bruce, You, um, what about when the movie actually gets, comes out and maybe the record comes out? Uh, there's a PDF that's going to be available afterwards, too, right? Well, right now we do have a digital we do have a digital version available, which you can get off the website right now and download. And then if you get the collector's edition, that's free. But what I'm going to do sometime in August or September of this year, assuming the schedule is kept, is that I will do a supplement and the supplement will be eight pages. And if you buy the collector's edition, we'll send it to you for free. If you want to buy it for a moderate amount, you can buy it and we'll send it to you or you can download it for free even if you didn't buy the book. So we'll have it available on the website. It'll be, you know, eight pages that you can print out 
it'll be done in such a way that you can print it out and cut it at the bottom and pop it right in the book if you like. Because um, I wanted the book to be as complete as could be. And normally for my books, I am able to, in advance of the book coming out, you know, normally I've been able to actually hear the, uh, the albums and the outtakes in advance and incorporate those into the book. This time I couldn't do it because it didn't come out at all. So there was no way to do it. And I, I could have delayed the book, but I really felt it made more sense to put the book out since uh, people had already paid for it. And since also I thought people were going to be looking for something that time of year anyway, so why not put it out? Well, you keep your, you keep to your schedule. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, I just want to throw in, you you, you talk about let it be and and stuff. And and this connects to the VJ stuff. When I, when I first picked up, let it be, it was at Lafayette and it was two ninety nine. Now I'm not sure if it was a counterfeit or not, because I've looked at it. I'm already suspicious. But yeah, but you're right. But this was in 1978. You said, that United Artists took it away in 1972 out of the catalog. But you know, the other record that was in the same bin that I bought also, and you'll love this, Bruce, was introducing the Beatles. Both mm-hmm. were $2.99, yep. both most likely a counterfeit. Yep. But you know what? Those two records being $2.99 and not $7.99, you know, encouraged me to get more Beatle music. So um, that's a very, those two records are, as collectors and as a collector and as a fan were sort of the continuation of me becoming a Beatle fan. Are you saying uh, that we need to support the counterfeiters, Rob? Is that, was that where you're going with this? Rob? <laughs> Anthony, you're going to love <laughs> Anthony, you're going to love what I, you're, I'm going about to say. Counterfeiters. No bootleggers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I will say. Counterfeit is wrong. That's, there you go. Stealing bootleg is not stealing. That's providing a service. Providing a that's, service. That's helping liberation. The fans be more fans, better fans. Musical liberation. Nice. <laughs> Very good, Rob. Well, look at all the books behind me, folks. Uh, Bruce has a ton of the books out. They are incredible books. Uh, the Bible. When you go to them, um, and my mistake was not buying the VJ. Uh, book because I'm getting into VJ so much now and there's, you know, 20 different labels for every single and Tali and all that stuff. Um, so, and also we have to thank you, Bruce, because uh, a few years ago, you, you, we have to thank you for many things, but a few years ago, you also helped uh, make uh, a few of the Beatles singles uh, on Tali and VJ, some uh, million sellers and they were certified by the RIA, right? Yeah, that was, um, that was quite an experience. Um, when I did the VJ book, I had a whole bunch of uh, paperwork from it. And um, so what I ended up doing, realizing I have the accounting ledger sheets from 1963 and uh, 64 and flew up to New York, met at the offices of the CPA for the RIAA. And the guy who normally does that was like, yeah, well, where's the Excel spreadsheet? No, no, no. And they brought in the oldest person at the firm, the head partner, and he was like, oh, my God, ledger sheets. I haven't seen these in like, you know, decades. And I had weekly, I had monthly sales and quarterly sales and weekly sales and everything. And so they got out and, you know, literally adding machines and everything and went through it. And it was, it was a hell of an experience. And at the end of the day, uh, they determined that out of those five records, they could certify sales of five million on four of the five. And those became platinum. And then do you want to know a secret, even though we know it, it sold over a million, 
technically we could only certify about 900 and I think 35,000. Um, Cause what VJ would do, you know, buy nine, get one free. Well, they really were selling you 10 and, you know, because the, it was worded, get one free. They couldn't count those freebies. So therefore we didn't break a million on, do you want to know a secret? Uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun doing it. What, uh, what labeled, I know you were presented with gold and platinums. What label did they use for like twist and shout? I think, cause uh, that was on Tolly, right? Or Tolly, uh, yeah. however you say it. Your assumption that I was presented gold record awards or platinum oh, records awards is sadly not true. I was presented with a letter from the RIAA and uh, we'll leave it at that. I hope one day that um, they will make some plaques because it, they would look good on the wall at Apple and they would look good on the wall of my office. Yeah, those are that. I'm so we do have a. They didn't do it. I'm stunned. At the very least, they could have done like what, you know, giving you the, giving you the option to have a plaque made or something like that. That's I, I think that'll be corrected at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because they do have the picture of the, uh, of the, uh, what is the head of, DJ Otali, whatever, giving the, yeah, go, giving the gold record uh, to Disc Limited, I guess, gold record, uh, not RIA certified to right. the Beatles. Right. And it, it's a different label than the Tali label we've seen. Yeah, so, they, they, for some reason, printed Love Me Do labels on a later version of a Tali label, which is yeah. really cool. Now, Love Me Do is in another picture with Ringo, and it's more of a traditional Tali label from that time frame. Amazing stuff. And you could find out about all this amazing stuff in these books, folks. Right. And, and the thing about the VJ book, it is sold out. It's expensive on the secondary market, but there is a digital version. And the digital version is revised and expanded. So even cool. if you have the print version of the VJ book, you should get the digital because there's a lot of cool new stuff in it, including a chapter on the RIAA certification. And if you go to the RIAA website, you will see that these four records were certified, I think it is like in July of 2016. Yeah, so amazing kind of stuff. And cool. I love all the documentation you have in all the books. I mean, all Thank of them. You. But the the VJ one, just I've seen it. And it's just, you know, I mean, it, unbelievable stuff. So thank you for everything. Uh, Bruce, we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but I, um, we just wanted to plug the book. The Beatles finally let it be. Go buy it. Go buy all of his books at beetle.net. Uh, again, Bruce will personalize, and we, we do want to say thank you very much. And I know we'll be talking to you again soon. Uh, by the way, you want to give us a hint? Is maybe anything coming up in the pipe work or, or no? Or yes uh, or no? Want a hint? At the end of the book, I kind of did what they did sometimes at the end of a James Bond movies and said James Bond will return. If they weren't sure of the movie, they left it at that. I'm right now concurrently working on three different books. I'm not sure which one's next, so I'd rather not say no awesome. problem. It's like the end of the blob where it says the end and then it turns into the question mark. So I, well, will, say, like, I will say the Beatles album series shall return and leave it at that. Well, we are okay, very happy to hear that. So for Fab Four Free For All, I've been your moderator for tonight, Mitch Axelrod. And joining me as they always do, and uh, I'm very happy that they do, are Rob Leonard and Tony Toronto. And we appreciate Bruce Beiser for hopping on for this episode. And we want to see you again soon. So join right. us. Take care. Okay. Take care. Take care. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly 
by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab 4 Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab 4 Free For All.